if you're traveling this year for Christmas, you're in good company. Uh, estimates say that about 115 million people will go 50 miles or more during the 10-day span of December 23rd to New Year's Day. And so anybody traveling in here? Nobody. Good. I'll, I look forward to seeing you at both services, uh, the 24th and the 31st. Uh, so if you are traveling, uh, we, we pray that you have a safe trip, you have some good time with loved ones, and we look forward to seeing you back. As we turn the page, it's been six months since the birth of John the Baptist. We're now getting to the birth story of Jesus Christ, and we see that uh, what I'm calling when the infinite became an infant. When the infinite became an infant, there were certain things that were taking place around this, um, this period of time. And so Luke wants us to understand this, um, and so he clearly gives us this uh, description in verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, if you'll follow along with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, and all the implications that come with it, that there are so many things that we may not even know that took place on this day as you were sending your son to redeem a lost people. Father, today as we worship you, we thank you for your son, and we pray that our minds and our attention will be focused on you, and you'll speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First thing, when the infinite became an infant, it was inevitable. It's going to be a tongue twister today, so let's just keep going with that. It was inevitable. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the world that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We begin here, and we begin with a history lesson. Luke begins by telling us the exact time period in which Jesus Christ entered the world. History tells us that Caesar Augustus reigned over the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14 and ordered a census to be conducted during his tenure. Herod the Great reigned until 4 B.C., meaning that Jesus had to be born sometime before that time. So this is, this is the stage. The stage is being set, but as we get into this and we begin to study this, there's some scholars who have raised some, some questions about Luke's accuracy in his, his historical document here. And so their problem is, is that Luke mentions Quirinius, this next character that comes up, the governor of Syria in Luke chapter 2. And this is a problem because Quirinius held his office between A.D. 6 and 7, which was 10 years later or after the birth of Jesus, according to Matthew and Luke. Well, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. So we know that God's word is true, and we know that early on as Luke was writing this, there was no red flags that were raised because of his historical you know, account. And so what is one solution for this is that the Greek word first that's mentioned here in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, is the word prontos, and it can be translated before. 
Thus, Luke 2.2 could actually be translated, this was the census taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. I just point this out to let you know that Luke is setting the stage. Luke is telling us, here's all the main players that are, that are taking place as leaders in this area. The great nephew of Julius Caesar, Octavian, was ruling the known world. He declared himself Augustus Caesar. Augustus means holy. It was a term reserved exclusively for Roman gods. So you have this political leader who has now elevated himself up to a God level. I am going to call myself holy. And as this is taking place, you have the God who created all things, sending his son into the world and saying, no, no, this is the God man, Jesus Christ. God was sending his son into the world and even corrupt world leaders were playing a part in what God was doing. The arrival of the infinite son of God was coming in the form of an infant. I'd like to tell you today that it was inevitable that Jesus would be born. It was inevitable. All things from the very beginning to this point were pointing towards this one moment. So what we want to do is walk through some of these things. When man fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise that he would send a redeemer, and that redeemer would be born of a woman, the seed of woman. The redeemer would come, and he would save sinners from their sins. All of the Old Testament was preparing for this moment, every sacrifice, Every ritual, every celebration, every Jewish festival, every law, and every prophecy was God moving us more and more steadily towards the moment when the Lamb of God would appear in the flesh, enter the world, and pay for the price of sin. It was inevitable that this would take place. In Genesis chapter 22, 6 through 8, it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. As we enter into the New Testament, we see the time has come, and John the Baptist would say in John 1:29, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the things were pointing towards this moment that God would provide for himself the lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. It was inevitable that Jesus was coming into the world. B, it was inevitable that Jesus would be born of a Jewish lineage. So now we're beginning to see that he's coming, and now we're going to begin to get narrow and more narrow and more narrow in the prophecies that are coming. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. This was a prophecy that out of the lineage of Jewish heritage, Jesus Christ would be born. It was inevitable that Jesus would be born, not only a Jew, but that he would be born in the line of David. Verse 3 of this chapter in Luke. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David. This points us all the way back to the Davidic covenant that was made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body. 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. This prophecy pointing towards the eternal kingdom, the kingdom that will be forever through the line of David, is surely to make us point ourselves back over to Isaiah chapter 53, 4-6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was inevitable that Jesus Christ was coming into the world. Not only would he be from a Jewish lineage, but he was coming from the line of David. He was to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he would reign eternally. And he was going to be punished for our sins, for our iniquities. They were going to be laid on him. And by his stripes, we are healed. It was inevitable that Jesus would be born in a little town of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. As we move further into this uh, study this morning, the sermon this morning, we're going to see that Bethlehem's got unique uh, connections to the reason Jesus was born there. He was born in this little town, and it was inevitable that Jesus would be born of a virgin. It's getting more and more narrow. Jesus is going to come into the world. It's inevitable. He's going to be born of the Jewish heritage. He's going to be born in the line of David. He's going to be born in a town of Bethlehem, and he's going to be born of a virgin. It can't get much more narrow than this as we get to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We know Emmanuel means God with us. God is coming in the flesh. And it was inevitable that Jesus would be born a man in flesh and blood. The Lord was sending his son and his son was going to be born in the flesh. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Likewise, he partook of the same things. It was inevitable that Jesus Christ was coming into the world. It's all getting more and more narrow, and it was inevitable that Jesus would be born at the right time in history. This was the moment that God had planned from the foundations of the world. This was the moment. It says there in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God had given his promises from Adam to Abraham to David through the prophets that the birth of Jesus would come at the fullness of time. If you say something will happen in the fullness of time, it means it will happen if you wait long enough. The world had been waiting for the inevitable, waiting for the fullness of time to come, that Jesus Christ would step in 
to the world, step into his humanity. J.C. Ralph says, let us ever rest our souls on the thought that times are in God's hand. He knows the best season for sending help to his church and new life into the world. The world had waited long enough, and the one who holds all time in his hands was sending his son into the world to redeem those who were lost. It was inevitable. All of this points us towards Jesus Christ in this moment. Not only was it inevitable, but when the infinite became an infant, it was inconvenient. It came at a very inconvenient time. Verse 3, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Convenient. Webster defines convenient as suited to personal comfort or to easy performance. Well, if it's inconvenient, that means it's not suited to personal comfort and not suited for easy performance. I'll just go ahead and say it's not a convenient time for Jesus to come into the world. Following Jesus, for many of us, will at some point probably inconvenience you. If you're to be a follower of Jesus, it might inconvenience you even this Christmas. Luke 9, 23 says, And he said to them, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being a follower of Jesus this Christmas may inconvenience you. It may inconvenience you because it may cause discord with you and your families as you sit around the table. It may inconvenience you because many of your family members may disagree with your beliefs. It may inconvenience you because it may cause you to lose physical possessions. It may inconvenience you because it will cause you to change. Things may become uncomfortable for you. God called Abram to leave Ur. He called Moses to go back to Egypt. He called Mary to travel while fully pregnant all the way to Bethlehem. He called Peter and asked him to stop fishing to follow him. And when he followed him, it took him out of the fishing game and made him a preacher. And that would cause him to be persecuted and one day martyred because of his belief in Jesus Christ. Following Jesus was at times an inconvenience for Mary. As we've already alluded, Mary was along for the ride. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Mary had said this, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, when she said these words, I am the servant of the Lord, I am the lowest of the Lord, I'm, I'm a handmaid, I am, I am at your service, whatever your word is. When she declared that, she said, no matter what the inconvenience may be. Now, we can only speculate about all the inconveniences this might have caused a young teenage virgin to be pregnant at a time when she was betrothed. But not only that, to hop on a donkey or to walk 80 miles to Bethlehem in her third trimester? I can't relate to that. I have no idea how hard that would be. But I can imagine it was inconvenient at best. It's a time when Mary has said, I will follow Jesus even when it inconveniences me physically. Let me ask you, if you come to a point where you have said, you know what, I will be the servant of the Lord no matter how much inconvenience it causes me. Well, we should because Jesus displayed the ultimate inconvenience when he left heaven to suffer for us. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Who 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He traveled much farther than 80 miles. He traveled from eternity to become humanity. He inconvenienced himself because he allowed himself to be placed on a cross and crucified in our place. If Jesus can leave heaven to come to a world to save sinners, then I can leave my convenience to follow him wherever he asks. Am I right? Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Now, what I was referring to earlier is that Bethlehem is referred to as the house of bread. So you can't miss the symbolism that the bread of life was born in a place called the house of bread, and then he was laid in a manger, which was actually a feeding trough. You, you can't miss the symbolism here that the house of bread was house, housing the bread of life. Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life in John chapter 6, verses 31 through 40 and verse 51. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You can't miss the symbolism here as we, even this month, have partaken of the Lord's Supper at every service. You think about the bread of life, the symbolism of Jesus is the living bread. He uses bread in the Passover meal with his disciples. We use the bread in the Lord's Supper as we remember his body that was broken for us. He is the bread of life that came down from heaven to offer eternal life to all who believe. Not to offend any of my gluten-free friends, but bread is essential for life, right? Bread is considered a staple. It's a basic dietary item. A person can survive a long time on bread and water alone. And bread is such a basic food item that it becomes synonymous for food in general. When we say, I'm going to break bread together with somebody, we mean I'm going to share a meal with them. Jesus 
is essential for eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not just any life. He's referring to eternal life. When he says, I am, he's using the covenant name of God as he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am the bread of life. One commentary said, our dilemma is that we have a desire that we cannot fulfill. No matter what we do, that is where Jesus comes in. He and he alone can fulfill that desire in our hearts for the righteousness through, divine, through a divine transaction. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 When Christ died on the cross, he took the sins of mankind upon himself and made atonement for them. When we place our faith in him, our sins are imputed to Jesus. And his righteousness is imputed to us. Jesus satisfies our hunger and thirst for righteousness. He is our bread of life. We can't miss the symbolism that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he is the bread of life. In fact, the first mention of Bethlehem moves us to another symbolism. It's a picture that we see in Genesis 35, 19 through 20. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrathah. That is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. We see that Rachel is buried here, and Rachel's name actually means lamb. She's buried there. We see it pop up again in Micah chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. The tower of flock was a watchtower located on the road to Bethlehem. Now according to Jewish history, this is what I was able to find and, and research, uh, the tower of flock in Bethlehem was the place that unblemished firstborn male lambs were born. They were wrapped in clothes, and they were brought to Jerusalem as Passover sacrifices in the temple. You can't miss the symbolism here, that the bread of life is born in Bethlehem, and you can't miss the fact that the Lamb of God was coming to the world to be the ultimate sacrifice. So not only do you have the bread, but you also have the blood. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It was inconvenient, but also inevitable that Jesus Christ, the one true king, would be the spotless Passover lamb. Jesus fulfilled the symbolism in the Passover meal as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The marking of the blood of the doorpost is, has a clear tie to the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. And it is therefore no surprise that to see the Lord's disciples link his death to the Passover throughout their writings. Without Christ... The Father looks upon the world he made and sees only a mass of corrupt sinners who are wholly deserving of his wrath. But since Jesus has died for his people, the Father now sees in the midst of fallen humanity men and women who have been marked with the blood of the Son by faith. His wrath can let these blood-bought saints alone in a passing over even greater than the one over the house of Israel so long ago, R.C. Sproul. It was inevitable 
he was inconvenient. And when the infinite became an infant, he was incarnate. He was flesh and blood. It says there in verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes. You know, about this time, 21 years ago, I got the chance to be a first-time parent. It's been a long time since that day, but I remember there were a lot of firsts for me. I really had never held a baby until my son was born. If I had, I had to be sitting down, and I had to have a pillow, and I had to be still the entire time until someone came and got the baby out of my hands because I was afraid I would drop the child. I had never changed a diaper until that day, and it was quite a challenge for my sensitive gag reflexes, but I did it, and I did my part. And it wasn't until my son was born that I had ever swaddled a baby. And if you've ever tried to swaddle a baby, you fight their limbs the whole time while you're trying to tuck the, the blanket, the baby blanket, the exact way it's supposed to be tucked so that that child feels safe, so that that child stays warm. So you can mimic somewhat of the environment of the womb. You can keep them from having the, the uh, scared moments where their hands go out. And this is what Mary does with Jesus. This picture shows you the frailty of the infant. It shows you that she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, not only as we saw a symbolism of, of lambs, but we see the symbolism of that Jesus needed to be taken care of by his earthly mother. Kent Hughes says, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to heaven for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and straw made a horrible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. No child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper. We must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins, with a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Christ himself setting the example comes to the needy. He is born only in those who are poor in spirit. Jesus was incarnate because he was human in every way. John 1:14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 John 4, 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Hebrews 2.17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As John Calvin said, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. He is incarnate. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands everything about us because he is the incarnation, 
The word incarnation means the clothing of flesh, the eternal, the infinite. When he arrived as an infant, was incarnate. As Heidelberg Catechism says, the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. As Luke Stamp says, as a human, Jesus experienced all the ordinary non-sinful limitations of humanity. He grew and developed. He experienced hunger, thirst, weariness, and a full range of human emotions. His humanity was integral in his saving work as his divinity. As the true human, the last Adam, he lived out obedience to God through our common humanity as our representative and substitute. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he merits salvation for all who are united to him by faith. As she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no room. As I closed this morning, I want you to see there was no room, which is symbolically a problem for many today. There's no room for Jesus in their busy lives. The inn here doesn't really refer to a motel. It's not that he didn't make reservations because it was going to be crowded. It means that they were going to their ancestral home, and likely they would have had all kinds of family there. In that culture, you wouldn't be staying in a hotel, but you'd be staying with family. You would have gone to the center of the town, and you would have waited for someone to invite you to come and stay in their home. But that town was beyond capacity. That town was full. That town was full of family. And there was no room for Jesus. Unfortunately, family often comes before Jesus, doesn't it? We pack our holidays full of things for the family, and yet we leave Jesus outside. There was no room. The fact that Jesus' birth was inevitable, his arrival was inconvenience, and he arrived incarnate in the flesh means that he was physically rejected by people, even at his birth. So this leads me to the question, do you have room for Jesus? in your busy schedules. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. It's a simple invitation today to open your heart to Jesus. Let's pray. Father,